if you want to go viral, like I'm not the girl for you. Cause like, that's not my goal. Like my goal isn't to get your elaborately. Cause I hate now that like we're elaborately decorating bridal suites. Mm-hmm. Why are we spending $20,000 on bridal suite decor? But like my why is to give them images that they can look back on. Welcome to the zoom in podcast. I'm Tamara, a creative director and commercial lifestyle photographer, the founder of Darden creative, a full service content creation agency and your host for the Zoom In Podcast, a podcast that highlights the stories and experiences of Black women photographers. A little housekeeping before we get into it. Please follow or subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And comments are currency, so please leave a comment on iTunes or rate the Zoom In Podcast on Spotify. You may just get a shout out on an upcoming episode. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of the Zoom In Podcast. Today's guest is Latar Sturgis of L. Danielle Photography. Now, full transparency, I totally thought L. Danielle was also Latar's name because of her IG handle, also being L. Danielle. And look, I know I'm not the only one guilty of assuming what someone's name is based on their IG handle. <laughs> but before we got into the interview, Latar explained the inspiration behind the name. So, listen real quick. Okay, so L. Danielle is the name of your business. It is, and most people assume it's my name. It's my first initial spelled out, and then my middle name, which was because I was still practicing law when I started the photography business and was worried about legal clients Googling me and getting confused or doubting my legitimacy as a lawyer because I was a photographer as well. So without further ado, here is Latar Sturgis of L. Danielle Photography. Thank you so much for coming onto the Zoom In podcast. I'm so happy to speak with you today and hear more about your journey from being a lawyer to a weddings and families photographer. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's go back about 10 years. You were a lawyer. Once once you passed the bar, like where were you working? How long? What law were you practicing exactly? I started at a midsize insurance defense firm um, straight out of law school doing very boring Medicare set-aside work, which most people wouldn't know what that means, but reviewing a lot of insurance settlement documents. Didn't love it. Didn't love it at all. And so I left that practice and started doing family law and domestic relations work on my own. Child custody, DHR, DCS type cases, mm. divorce work, kind of the things that people perceive as messy mm. is what I dove into. What inspired you to go into into that law? Because that you, as you just sh- said, I'm getting tongue-tied here. As you just shared, family law can get very messy. Um, and I feel like you have to have a certain exterior or skin in order to probably manage a lot of the nuances of the cases. Um, so what what drawn you to, to family law? Honestly, I felt like it was just a good opportunity because most of my peers, it's kind of one of those areas that everyone always needs a family law lawyer or a divorce, mm. a divorce lawyer but very few people want to practice that area on their own. And so it was just, it was an area that I knew people would refer the work to me. Um, I had taken the family law class when I was in law school. 
received the highest grade in the class, did well. The presiding judge at the time was my professor. So I knew I had that connection and could, you know, get on the list to get the court appointed cases, things like that. So it wasn't that I was passionate at the time about pursuing family law cases. I just knew that it was an area that I could more easily build a solo practice on my own. And essentially carving a niche because not many people were diving into it. It's kind of like, honestly, photography, you know, trying a lot of different genres before saying, oh, I'm going to step into this one. Yeah, It just makes sense. If anyone's listening, it's, it's the same thing, even outside of photography of like deciding, okay, this is the, the one thing I'm going to focus on and I'm going to make sure that I do it well and that I do it right so that I build a reputable name for myself. It's the same application, just in a different industry. Exactly. I feel like you kind of answered this already in terms of doing a job that you love, um, but you were doing law for, you know, a considerable amount of time. Um, and obviously you made the transition eventually from law to doing photography full-time. When did you start becoming interested in, in photography? Like was, what was the moment when you said, this is cool. Like, you know, I'm serving my family law clients, but I'm itching to do something that I guess is a little bit more creative. Part of the story that I haven't mentioned yet is that I had a child my last semester of law school. Having a six-month-old and practicing law at a firm and billing hours and being beholden to law partners and their expectations definitely factored into some of my struggles early in my law career. Um, finding that balance of being a good mom and being a present mom and being a mom that could be there when he had, I think, five ear infections his first month in daycare was part of the reason that I was unhappy practicing law in that firm setting. That's mm. part of the reason that I ended up going to practice law on my own. And so having that child around the six month mark, we went and had family pictures done for the first time. And so like so many moms, I convinced myself that I should go buy a camera and take pictures of my own child, which very quickly turned into taking pictures of other babies at daycare and going on, you know, Facebook at the time, I think a few months into it, I was like, well, hey, let me find an adult couple. Like, let me find some grownups to take pictures of. And so those were my first, you know, adult engagement session type of images back then. But I didn't pick up a camera with the intentions of building a photography career. Photography sort of, I guess, found me, if you will. I did both. I practiced law for five years. Mm -hmm. I did both for four of those years, I would say. And for a long time, it was perfect. Practicing law on my own, I would have busy seasons, I would have slow mm -hmm. seasons, and mm -hmm. it would always overlap that my slow season in law was my busy season in photography and vice versa. Until probably the last year when it felt like I was legitimately working two full-time jobs. Mm. At the time, I was working for a nonprofit doing domestic violence work. And our federal funding wasn't renewed. And so the department that I worked for, they got rid of it and I was laid off. And so I never had to make the decision to say, I'm going to quit my job to go be a full-time photographer. It just worked out that I lost my full-time job and was faced with the opportunity to either go back to practicing on my own or to pursue photography full-time. 
And at that time, my son was going into public schools. He was going into pre-K. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at where's he going after school? Where's he going when I have to go to court during the summer? You know, can I go to field trips? Can I eat parent, you know, donuts with mom and lunches on Tuesday and do those things? And so being a photographer gave me more flexibility to be the type of mom that I wanted to be mm-hmm. at that stage in his life. And what year was this around? That was 2012. Okay, 2012. It's so interesting because I was talking to another guest, Takia Wallace, the the founder of Brown Girls Do Ballet. And it was kind of around the same time, you know, she had had a daughter, Charlie. And when she had her daughter, her daughter wanted to go into ballet. And they realized, or she realized that there weren't a lot of images showing other brown girls doing ballet. And so that kind of inspired her to, you know, shoot other brown girls. And so I I bring that up because it just sounds like children are, (laughs) seem to be the greatest inspiration, (laughs) picking up the camera and documenting, you know, those very fleeting moments when they're babies and toddlers. Yes. Now that I have a high schooler, I can say it happens way too fast. (laughs) Yeah. If you had to describe the L. Danielle bride or the L. Danielle family, who is she? Who who are they? You know, I try to really connect with clients who want to authentically document the moments that I'm capturing. And authentic is such a, a cliche word these days, but My clients aren't necessarily worried about going viral. They're not always in it to, you know, get the most likes or to have kind of that, that flashy moment. Like they just want to genuinely document their love, their story, their day, their kids, even when their kids are being crazy. Like they just want to capture that moment in time. It's almost like the intangible experiences um, that you're capturing through your, through your photography. And it's very interesting that you said that they don't want to go viral. That is a very clear messaging, right? It's not, oh, the, the ones who want to stand out or say, oh, look at me, right? It's more like, no, this is like an intimate experience or moment that I'm that I'm capturing with my family for my family, that I, I'm building this legacy through through these images so that they can look at this 10, 15, 20 years from now. Exactly. Before we started, you were just talking about some of your reservations behind why you felt like photography was not going to be valuable work to pursue or to be taken seriously. So I would love for you to just share a little bit more about that thought process. So there's, there's really two sides to it. You know, I was very much the, the child growing up who knew when she was 12 that being a lawyer is what she wanted to do. I went to law school with this, you know, utopian idea that I was going to save the world like so many law students do, wrote many essays about it. But it's hard to save the world as one person kind of in the legal system. And that was what I was pursuing, but it wasn't what I was actually achieving. And so when I started looking at photography as a career option for me full time, I had this worry that I was giving up, you know, the quote unquote meaningful career, the the prestigious career, the career that I had gone to school for, the career that was supposed to be making a big difference for something that was less meaningful, 
was glossier, was, was pretty, but it wasn't, you know, changing the world by any means. But I had like very specific instances where I was reminded of the importance of photography for the individuals that I was working for. And those I can remember specifically, like I had one client who her and her fiance are, you know, plus size and I shot their engagement session and she sent me a message when she got the gallery telling me that she had come into the session feeling worried and feeling very insecure and that when she saw her images, she just felt beautiful. She didn't see those insecurities. She didn't see those worries. She only saw how beautiful they looked together and, you know, the story of their love. And like that helped me realize like I'm for her, I created something meaningful and I impacted her and her story. Mm -hmm. And another story that I can think of off the top of my head, um, there's another client who was getting married and they hadn't had a wedding in their family for 30 some years. There had been relationships, there had been babies, there had been everything except for actual weddings. And so for her, she wanted to make sure that her day was documented so she could show her nieces, who were the flower girls in the wedding, that like this is what you do when you fall in love. This is how you pursue a godly relationship. Like this is what marriage and strong relationships look like. And so documenting that day for her, but also for the little girls in her in her life and in her family was creating something meaningful. And so, you know, photographers, we have the opportunity to take, you know, maybe grandparents' last photos to get family that hasn't been together for years to make people feel beautiful and feel special and feel seen. And it took me a minute, but I was able to realize that I was creating an impact in the world in my own way. It's just so interesting to me that you went from practicing family law to then saying, I want to capture the happiness of families and weddings and children being happy with their parents, showing a unified front. Was that intentional? It was definitely a huge difference when I was doing both and like the two lives that I was living because on the one hand I very much wanted to help my legal clients if you recall my last full-time job was doing domestic violence work and so in some ways I was literally saving lives I was helping women get away from their abusive partners I was helping protect kids I was all in doing my work. But the thing about, I think, a lot of areas of law, especially family law, is that you're a component, as the lawyer, you're a component in people's worst chapters of their lives. And so despite the good work that I did, a lot of times people saw me as a part of the problem rather than a part of the solution. Hmm. And you know, you don't do that type of work because you want pats on the back. And, you know, I wasn't the stereotypical, I'm going home so depressed every day because I do divorce work. In turn, I was, I guess it let me be grateful for my own situation because it was, you know, like I, I see these people going through these dire circumstances. And despite how bad anything may look in my life, like I know I have a lot to be thankful for. So mm -hmm. it wasn't, I wasn't depressed because I was a divorce attorney or anything like that, but just my interaction with human beings was always so negative. 
Whereas on the flip side, on the weekends, when I put my El Danielle photography hat on, I was taking, you know, this is my first few years of photography, probably still taking a little better than mediocre pictures of people's kids, but people loved me. Like little Johnny could have mess all over his face. And mom was just like, you're the best. You're amazing. Come over for Christmas dinner. Like people were so happy to shower me with love and to be thankful for what I was doing for them, as opposed to the other side where I felt like I was doing good work, but just never was really appreciated for it. So it was a very different interaction with the clientele on both sides. And it still factors very much into my why as to why I, you know, photograph clients in the way that I do and what my goals are. You know, I talk about my clients don't want to go viral. And that's in part because I have conversations with them from the beginning to make sure that we're a good match because my goal isn't for them to go viral. My goal is for them to have the pictures and the memories documented so that way they can look back on and realize how much they have to be thankful for Mm. and realize how much their love means and how much their love is worth fighting for or their kids are worth fighting for or, you know, like creating memories for people to look back on and to genuinely remember how they felt in that moment. That's beautiful. There's there's nothing else that I can add to that <laughs> to, to sweeten that. My follow-up question is because you brought up the idea, if you're someone who wants to go viral, then we're probably not the right fit. Um, did you know that Im- immediately or was it something that you had to figure out as you were, you know, working on weddings and, and family photography? It's definitely something that has evolved over the years. I think I went into photography with that core why of wanting to document moments for people to have to look back on. But as my photography grew, probably around year five or six, I was, you know, in some ways kind of the it girl. A lot of, you know, I've had moments go viral. I've had weddings featured in magazines and on all the big blogs. But what I saw happening was that the more light that was shining on me in terms of publicity, I was attracting clients who wanted that publicity. And so the days became more about producing moments that could be featured or moments that might go viral, as opposed to moments that were naturally happening on their own. And so, you know, one, it's very tiring to produce a 10 hour day versus document a 10 hour day. There were just moments that I was seeing that were being missed because people's mindsets weren't in living in the moment. They were too focused on creating something that other people would look at and be like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Versus them looking at themselves and being like, wow, that's amazing because that's what really happened. Worried about hashtag wedding goals as opposed to this is a moment that I can share with my kids and grandkids several years from now. Yeah. You know, I can't say that I don't ever have work featured anymore or that I don't work with, you know, couples or planners who, you know, want that to be the case or that, you know, I just document days that are just genuinely beautiful and worthy of publication, but it's just not the goal going into it. Mm -hmm. That's Just the big difference of like, if our goal is to genuinely document the day and it's so beautiful and so special and so unique that it warrants publication, then cool, I'm all for it. Like I'm never anti-publication. I just don't go into the day thinking 
okay, this is how we're going to get this wedding published. Right. That's not the priority. It's a bonus, essentially. Exactly. It's it's a bonus. I feel like there's so much there that every photographer can take from that because I think I, I'll speak for myself. There have been moments where I feel like I've kind of lost myself because I was so concerned with, you know, getting attention or notoriety from certain individuals or certain companies. And if I didn't get it, then my place in the world of photography just is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Chasing the most popular trends just to get instant gratification um, but then still still feeling empty inside. And so I, I think that's really important to understand that when you're serving your clients, it's not necessarily from, you know, the likes or the accolades. The validation should always come from your client, or at least that's that's what I believe, because that lets you know that you're you're doing it right. Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about just running a business, <laughs> a photography business. One of the things I used to tell my mentees um, is that you should always have a contract. Even if the rate is $200, even if it's at the, the very beginning of your career, you you need a freaking contract. So this this may be a dumb question. So I apologize if it, if it is, um, but did you instinctively have a contract when you were just starting out or was it kind of like a sign of faith with your clients and then you added a contract? No, I never had any faith. <laughs> I mean, my contract has definitely evolved over the years. There are clauses that, you know, weren't there in the beginning that are there now. Um, but I think even from the beginning, even with the small jobs, I always had something in writing. It may not have been a formal contract, but even if it was just a follow-up email, there was something documenting the the who, the what, the where, and the how. Just so that way, if anything got confused, I could pull back up and say, no, no, no. This is what I said I was going to do. This is what we agreed to. And it, like, it's funny, like even in the beginning, like when you're doing those low cost jobs and, you know, you're doing those trades, like those are the ones that are probably going to get the messiest because mm -hmm. you're fighting over $200. And for mm -hmm. someone fighting over $200, like that's really worth the fight. So contracts matter certainly at every level, but definitely in the beginning as well. As a wedding photographer, what are some non-negotiable clauses that you have in your contracts? Ooh, okay. So that one of my favorite soapbox, soapbox moments is to talk about um, how to handle a wedding cancellation. There's this industry belief that I see in every photography Facebook group that I'm in, that if the clients cancel their wedding, the photographer should send them a cancellation contract. When in reality, how a cancellation happens should be addressed in the first contract. There should be some sort of clause that says, if the client cancels, this is what happens to the money. This is what happens to the liability. This is what happens to the parties moving forward. Because what you don't want as a photographer is to be left on the hook for an event that isn't canceled until they return the cancellation contract because you've just created a whole new document that they have to sign and agree to. And it leaves you in limbo, unable to plan a family trip or to book another mm -hmm. client, because in theory, you're still on the hook for the original date. And then I think from a customer service perspective, if someone's canceling their wedding, 
is probably not a happy situation. And here you are saying, well, I understand that you've canceled, but sign this other document and, you know, read through and understand this other legal document that I've seen you while you're going through something that's very difficult. The better situation is they say, hey, we've canceled our wedding. And you say, you know, so sorry to hear that. Pursuant to our contract, this is what happens. First of all, that makes sense. I have a cancellation clause in my contract, among other things, like a force majeure and et cetera, et cetera. But there are people out there saying that you should have a separate cancellation clause. I'm trying to understand what would be the benefit for a photographer to have a separate piece of paper canceling the contract when it should be, to your point, in the first one. So a cancellation contract is appropriate when, you know, let's say I'm your photographer, you're my client, and something happens and we mutually agree to cancel, or, you know, I think I like to think for like female photographers, if she's expecting and knows mm-hmm. that she won't be able to photograph the wedding because she's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. nine months pregnant to the day on the wedding date. Like in those situations, it would be appropriate to say, hey, this is the agreement that we're making in terms of what happens with your wedding. And we're going to sign a document saying we're mutually agreeing to cancel the contract. That's very different than a client signing an original contract, hiring a photographer for certain services, and then saying, well, we're canceling those services. That doesn't require a separate and Mm. brand new contract, despite what Facebook groups may lead you to believe, which is a whole nother question on why our photographers go into Facebook groups for legal advice. But I can't stand Facebook groups. I, I'm sorry. We're going to go on the tangent, okay? <laughs> because for a moment when I was a coach, briefly, I was in several photography groups and there were very few people who were providing information, in my opinion, that was sound mm-hmm. or that was objective. People who are like, You know, well, if no one responds to your email after the first time, that means they don't value you and that they don't want to work with you. No, that doesn't mean that at all. On average, it takes five times before someone responds. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on that tangent, but- No, I mean, there's definitely things that you want to crowdsource, you know, what what should I have for dinner tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Which robot vacuum cleaner should I buy? I did that one recently. I just got me a a shark robot vacuum. I love it. Oh, you may need to share the link for that because I desperately need a vacuum. So, But legal (laughs) advice from people who don't know anything about the law isn't something that should be crowdsourced on a Facebook group. Customer service from people who probably aren't running sound businesses probably isn't another thing. Like I understand like it's, it's very important for photographers who don't have, you know, coworkers in a traditional sense to have senses of community and to have a place to go to people who understand because, you know, families, spouses, siblings, all well-intentioned don't get it. Mm -hmm. So like, I understand the need to have communities to talk to, but like, you got to take the good and then leave the bad. People are too quick to say, oh, well, someone on Facebook said that I should do this and do it when it's the worst advice ever. (laughs) What's one example of really bad advice that you've seen from a group, aside from the the cancellation contract idea? Mm, So that's the one I get tagged in all the time because I've spoken at many conferences like y'all stop Mm. doing this. I'd say even before we get to the advice, like the even the need for the Facebook groups, like. 
I go into lawyer mode really quickly when I start thinking about how much information people are divulging about conflicts mm, mm-hmm. in groups because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know I've I've seen posts where a person will say you know this is the situation that happens and I know I was wrong and I know I should do this but I'm going to do this instead like should that ever go to court and the other side get their hands on that admission that you knew you were wrong and you wanted to do what you should have done, but instead you decide to do this other thing, probably because your Facebook community members told you to like, that's just saying, Hey, I was wrong. I knew I was wrong. Punish me for it. Mm. Um, So that drives me crazy seeing how much information people put on Facebook about what might turn into a legitimate legal action. Another one that comes up a lot is how to handle mothers who want to sign the contract. So a lot of times you'll end up in a situation where mom's paying for the wedding. And so mom wants to be the one signing the contract. Oh, interesting. You know, people will chime in with their advice one way or the other. And my personal preference is that ideally you convince mom's payment to be a gift to the bride and groom or to the couple. So that way the couple... Your clients are the ones who are entering into the agreement with you because they're the ones receiving your services. They're the ones whose likeness is going to be captured when it comes Mm, to copyrights mm -hmm. and things like that. It's not anything against any parents who want to sign off on contracts, but they're not really the people who are receiving the services. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll have parents who are adamant about being on the contract. And if that's the case, then I make them just a third signature line and let them be a party to the contract, but they never replace my actual service receiving clients. Also, I feel like that would be a pretty difficult pickle because if the mother of the bride is on the contract, is it then assumed that the mother of the bride is the creative director? Like they would oversee the creative direction of the wedding? Well, they definitely become legally your clients. And so I have seen, I've seen so much. I have seen at least one scenario where the mother who signed the contract and therefore had the relationship with the photographer wanted to fire the photographer, but the bride and the groom didn't. And so then you've got a situation where one person is trying to fire and technically that's your client. And I've seen another situation, which is even crazier, where the mom wasn't happy with how the wedding day went or for whatever reason, mom didn't want to share the images with the bride and groom. And so, you know, these images are being held hostage because you've provided them to your client and your client doesn't want to provide them to someone else. And so it just, it creates this very weird scenario. Whereas if mom gets unhappy or something goes wrong, the photographer has to answer to mom first, as opposed Mm. to the clients that receive the services. I would have never have guessed or thought that the mother of the bride would sign the contract. I would always think it's, it's the couple or a representative, representative of the couple. Mm -hmm. What, so what about any good advice? Is, Is there been any good advice that you have seen in Facebook groups or maybe not even Facebook groups? Being an attorney in the beginning, I had to learn a little bit of balance when it comes to customer service over legal remedies. Hmm. That's a good way of wording it. Like Mm -hmm. in the beginning, if someone was like three days late with their payment, I was like, I'm suing them. (laughs) 
Like, let me go. Dialing it back a little bit, not being so litigious and so quick to sue. Good customer service can avoid so many future problems. And usually that comes in the form of good communication and good education. Telling clients what to expect, how to prepare, how to best be ready to be their best on the wedding day or at their Mm -hmm. family session can do wonders for them being unhappy after the fact because they didn't know to hire a professional makeup artist or they didn't expect that these things may go awry and it'll be okay. You know, makeup artists is kind of like the perfect example because we all know, us photographers all know that your everyday makeup, no matter how great it is, just does not photograph the same as professional makeup. Mm -hmm. And so without giving clients that heads up of, hey, here are some makeup artist recommendations or just asking the question like, well, who's doing your makeup? Not having that conversation in some way, shape or form, going to the session, their makeup isn't done. And then after the fact they don't like the images because they didn't have on the proper makeup and so here you are you've done a great job you've taken beautiful images but they're not usable images or they're not images that the person loves because you simply didn't tell them or bring up the option of having a makeup artist Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be you know kind of in the very beginning like there's conversations that can and should happen as you're building a rapport with your client leading up to the day That doesn't mean I don't have clients that I I talk to them at booking and then I see them at the Mm -hmm, session. mm -hmm. Ideally, having a conversation via email, whatever the case may be, said ask, you know, well, who's your makeup artist? Do you need a makeup artist recommendation? Making sure they account for time to have their makeup done before their session. Just any way that you can kind of drop little nuggets of education about the importance of makeup. Photographers can certainly do it through PDFs that are sent to clients ahead of time Mm -hmm. of preparing for their session. Mm -hmm. They can use their own branding and social media as an opportunity to educate and to talk about the importance of makeup artists, you know, when they're on Instagram sharing sessions. There's different ways to work that point into the education process. And for everyone, it, it can be different. But I think that as a disservice, listen, that's just one example, but as a disservice, if we aren't educating clients about how to best prepare, if we aren't being the expert, then we're not giving them the value that they're paying for. Yeah, a hundred percent. You brought up Instagram and I want to briefly talk about social media marketing because I feel like in the past six to eight months, there's been this wave of creatives specifically Black women photographers or just Black women, period, who are like, I'm done playing with this algorithm and you're not going to catch me on here creating three to five reels every day in order to, you know, increase my reach or increase my exposure to possibly only convert one person into a client if that at all. I've definitely fallen (laughs) into that category, if I'm being completely honest. A lot of my clientele now are like word of mouth and referral. So, you know, do you utilize Instagram as much anymore for your business? Or is it now a business that runs solely on, you know, the the word of mouth and referrals of, of your existing clientele? A little bit of both. Um, I definitely come and go in great waves from social media. I have weeks where I'm so into it and then I'll go like a month without posting anything. But if, you know, we're looking at Instagram as being a marketing tool like you, most of my clients are word of mouth referrals 
And then on the family portrait side, I'm shooting families that I've been shooting for literally seven, eight, nine years that come back to me every single year. It's not always what I do, but what I think, what I want to do, what I think that we all should get back into the habit of when it comes to social media is not looking at it as a second portfolio. When Instagram started, it used to just be this fun place where we showed pictures. Mm-hmm. It was just pictures. Missed those days where we showed pictures with heavy filters and poor editing. Like it was just, it was pictures that we were taking on our phones. Mm-hmm. Mayfair. To, <laughs> to upload, you know, camera taking images at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it slowly shifted into this platform where it became all about showing off our work, showing what we could do. And, you know, for a lot of us, we stopped putting time and energy into our websites, into our blogs, into email marketing. Like we put all of our eggs in the Instagram basket. And I think that the algorithm has shifted so much that it's so hard to, to get any traction on that platform. And so back to my original point, what I'm hoping to do at this stage and moving into 2023 is to still show my work, still let that be a source for people to find me, but to get back to showing more of the person behind the camera. Hmm. That way my my feet isn't, this is L. Danielle Photography's work. More so, this is what it's like a day in the life of El Danielle, mom, wife, former lawyer, photographer, soccer mom, like all the different things that I'm doing in my life and how photography fits into that. Mm. Because what's important about that is it shifts it back to the idea that people will or should be hiring you based on who you are. Because a lot of people can take amazing images, but who are you? What are your values? What's important to you? And how can you add to, how can you document or add to their story? Like what kind of service can you provide to them as a human being who loves tacos? Like how can I connect with you? Because I love tacos and you love tacos. And I'm someone that you want to spend 10 hours with who also takes pretty pictures, if that all makes sense. It does. It's kind of going back to the basics. Yeah. The algorithm, like it's like a four letter word. Like it's just, mm-hmm. There's no way to outsmart the algorithm. There's no way to beat the algorithm. As soon as you figure the algorithm out, the algorithm will have changed again. And so if we all focus less on mastering the algorithm and just focus on creating content that we like, that other people will like, whether it be business related, personal related, reels, carousels, stories, like no matter what, if we're just being genuine and authentic and creating content, then the people who are supposed to come will come. Thank you for giving me that encouragement. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's going back to the basics and then just, I guess, piggybacking off of the point of educating your consumer. I think a lot of us get really uncomfortable with showing ourselves. For the most part, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable because they don't want to... I feel like there's a level of embarrassment, like people don't want to get it wrong. Right. They don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to be judged. I think so many people are on eggshells a lot. Like, oh, if if I say this, I don't want to be canceled. I don't want to be crucified. I I don't want to be ostracized. Um, And so aside from just chasing the algorithm, I think there's also this, this level 
of feeling like I can't be as comfortable as I want to be out of, out of fear. Do you think that's the case? Or maybe, I I I don't know. I mean, I'm guilty of it myself, you know, like it's all become so curated and so perfect and so pretty. Yeah. But that's also kind of what gave rise to TikTok is that it's more genuine and it's more real. Like we've gone, the pendulum has swung so far to curate a perfection that we're all yearning for that authenticity. And I think that's what most people find refreshing about TikTok is that it's less perfect. It's more real. I, I won't speak of the Be Real app, which I right, right. I'm not even on for real. Um, but we're all craving that authentic- authenticity. And I think that, you know, as creatives, or at least, you know, creatives who want to document those authentic moments that I'm speaking on, we have to be willing to, and it's, you know, this is me talking to myself and giving myself the same advice that I don't necessarily follow, but we have to be willing to be imperfect if we're telling our clients to show up as their true selves. Hmm. Like I can't be worried about, you know, I can't, I can't get on Instagram stories because my hair is not perfectly done. Granted, people should be showing up for sessions with their hair done, but like, for the mothers that we say, don't wait to lose 10 pounds to show up in photos with your kids because your kids are going to look back and be like, mom wasn't present in any photos for five years. Like I, you, all of us have to be willing to show up in the same way. I can't not be on stories because I want to lose five pounds, which I do, but I can't cut myself off for that same reason and then expect clients to be willing to show mm-hmm. up and be authentic and be vulnerable and to be said them true selves if I'm not willing to do the same. Right. So extending grace to ourselves just as much as we want to extend it to our clients. Exactly. Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit. So where was the furthest place you've traveled for your photography? Let's see. By hours, I would say I've been to New York and Pennsylvania. I've been to Colorado a few times and then I've been to like Mexico and Jamaica so those would probably be the furthest corners that I've traveled as a photographer and then my husband and I eloped in Paris France and so as a photographer eloping in France (laughs) I, I had a lot of control over everything that happened there so in a way I kind of traveled for that too that would be the furthest. How did you prepare in order to make sure that the photography experience was still a success when you've traveled for work? So a lot of times people have this perception, potential clients have this perception that you will be a better photographer for their day if you have this innate working knowledge of their venue or of the location Mm -hmm. where they're getting married. And I like to tell people for me at least that's definitely not the case because what happens is when I go somewhere that I've never been inspired by and get into a groove of capturing what's unique about the spot inspired by the love I'm inspired by the couple I'm inspired by the light I'm inspired by the venue whereas if I'm shooting somewhere that I've shot at several times I almost unintentionally pigeonhole myself into doing what I know works. Mm -hmm. I think I do a better job photographing a location almost sight unseen as I do somewhere that I've been a hundred times. 
are you traveling like the day before the wedding to kind of walk through the venue? But it's like, okay, you know, at least I know, okay, maybe the lighting's really good here or the lighting isn't good here. Okay, I'm going to need, you know, additional lighting in this area um, and then kind of just go off the top. So I do always travel the day before just because travel circumstances can occur where Mm. you don't get there in time and, you know, then you got to go to that contract. It depends. I won't say that I don't ever see venues ahead of time. You know, nowadays you can see a lot just by looking at the venues website. Yeah, looking true. At other weddings that have taken place or having a conversation mm-hmm. with the on-site coordinator about popular spots. But it's hard to even plan for where the best lighting will be unless you're there at the same time. If I arrive in a city at four o'clock the day before the wedding, that four o'clock lighting isn't going to be the same as the 12 o'clock lighting when they're having mm-hmm. their first look. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do try to, if it's somewhere I've never been, I try to arrive early on the wedding day so I can at least familiarize myself with the layout. If I've seen this amazing staircase online and I know I want to possibly use that staircase for bridal portraits, I at least want to know where the staircase is and not be on the wedding day or, you know, mm-hmm. when it's crunch time. So a lot of times it's, I kind of show up and I hate to say fly by the seat of my pants because that sounds so unprepared, but I show up and I'm, I'm inspired. Like I said, I see mm-hmm. the shape of her dress and I see the chandelier or the stairs or the, the light that's coming in through the windows and say like, this would be an amazing place for portraits. And honestly, the weddings that I have done that have been like that have been some of my best because like we all know too well, it can be a parking lot behind a grocery store with a field that's amazing that you would have never planned to take a picture in this parking lot, mm-hmm. but you're just walking by and it's like, oh, look at that tall grass. Mm-hmm. Let me put y'all right here. And it's not something you can plan. It's just something that when you're in the moment and you see it and you're inspired by it and you make it work. Yeah. How how do you stay inspired and where do, where do you find inspiration from? Mm, it goes through different phases too. I mean, you know, I've gone through my Pinterest phase, <laughs> gone through the phase where brides would send me specific Pinterest boards. I would like to say that I am inspired more so by the couple, by their style, by their love, by their personalities, because you know, you try to get a sense of that leading up to the wedding. So that way you can serve your clients well, but there's big differences in the sexy, high fashion, easily model-esque type of clients and the ones that are more shy and more reserved and more cuddly and more romantic. And you can't Mm. create the same imagery for one as you do the other. Yeah. And so you gotta just, I think, just try to be intuitive and being in the moment and just getting a sense of the story and the personalities and the vibe and like how to tell the story of that day. Yeah. It seems like your photography experience slash career has opened up a lot of doors. It's provided a lot of opportunities to travel across the country, also parts of the world. You have made made such a difference for your your brides and for your families. Was that something that you always set out to do with your photography career or do you feel like that has been a natural progression for you I would say in the beginning it was a goal because I mean that's like you know hashtag photographer goals to Mm -hmm. be able to travel and to go and to shoot weddings and amazing destinations um, and to have clientele 
wanting your services from all over the country. I'm confident that what I'm going to say will shift in about four years, but I can say at this time, because that son who was going into pre-K when I first went into full-time photography is now a high school freshman. And so all I can think about is I have three or four summers left before he's gone. And so as amazing as it is to travel, I don't necessarily make more money from it. I just spend more time instead Mm. of going to work for eight to 10 hours and coming home and sleeping in my bed, I'm gone for three days and, you know, setting aside weekends, many, many months in advance and, you know, blocking off the whole parts of my calendar. And so at this stage in my work-life balance, I would prefer to shoot locally and then have the money and time and flexibility to travel on my own terms, have control over that travel, travel with my family. Because another thing that I don't think I knew going into it was that traveling to Jamaica for a wedding, as amazing as it may be, doesn't mean it's a Jamaican vacation. I may get a couple hours on the beach and I have loved the time that I have spent laying in hammocks and enjoying resorts. (laughs) I have enjoyed it. I I will not say that I have not enjoyed the time that I've spent traveling abroad or to any location for my wedding work, Mm -hmm. but it's not days and days of relaxation. Right. You're getting there the night before you're charging your batteries. You're getting ready for the wedding. Maybe you're looking at the venue, Mm -hmm. getting a good night's rest. You're working all day, shooting, 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 maybe shooting a day after session the next morning, working after travel logistics. And then you're probably going home a couple hours later. Like it's not the grand vacations that I think I would have thought it would have been. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that very honest thought around traveling for work. Yeah. Because, you know, we always think about, I'm getting flued out. <laughs> <laughs> like, I will say like, you know, as someone who is inspired by different locations and venues and, mm-hmm. and weather, like just even within the United States, like it's so different shooting in Arizona or Nevada, just the way the light is versus, mm-hmm. you know, DC's architecture or the vibrant tropical scene in like South Florida, like those places create amazing images because it's new and it can inspire people go from the desert to shoot like somewhere where there's trees and they act like those trees are amazing because they don't see trees. And so Mm -hmm. they shoot it with a different appreciation for the fact that there's trees in the background. Whereas Mm -hmm. I see trees every day. The trees aren't special to me, Mm -hmm. but you put me in a desert and it's like, oh my gosh, look at how amazing this is. I have a, a deep appreciation for the artistry and the inspiration of being in different locations. What are you looking forward to in the new year? Well, now that I've had all this self-reflection, <laughs> <laughs> this podcast therapy, my goal going into the year was to start blogging again, to stop putting all of my eggs mm-hmm. in that Instagram mm-hmm. basket. I don't think mm-hmm. I've blogged regularly since about 2017. Oh, so I've been working on getting back into the habit of doing that because ultimately it's giving me ownership of the content that I'm creating. And it's not, mm-hmm. you know, putting it on Instagram or relying on an algorithm. So many examples in current times could show us how quickly a platform can go away or turn into a hot mess. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want my work to only live on a platform that I can't control. Mm-hmm. And then it helps me to connect with clients because it's not just having a conversation with them to get their business and then documenting their day, but it lets me connect with them after the event to get 
some thoughts on like, what was their favorite part of the day? What, yeah. what advice do they have for other clients? Like those are the days when I loved my work the best is when I was connecting with clients mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in multiple ways at multiple stages. And like I said, I've been, a lot of the families that I shoot now that I've been shooting for years, they started as wedding clients. And so I used to do a better job at connecting. And so I want to get back to figuring out in this day and age with social media being what it is, like how to really connect with people. So I feel fulfilled in my work. So that's a big thing that I'm looking forward to is I said, I'm, it's December. It was a goal for 2022 that I'm just finally like knocking off my to-do list because the year is almost over. Um, so that will be a big part of 2023 for me. And then I think too, as someone who's been doing this now for 12 years, who's been very consistent in my style of work um, to the point that I can look back at images that were taken like 10 years ago. And it could have been an image that I took yesterday, which is a good thing because I've been consistent, but I worry sometimes if I've gotten too comfortable and a little Mm. stale in my approach to things. And so I want to take the slow season that's coming up, you know, December, January, February, before things pick back up when the weather warms and just take a look at my work and maybe pushing my boundaries a little and getting a little mm-hmm. uncomfortable and figuring out ways to be creative and to to spark kind of a new fire within myself. Yeah, I'm doing the same thing. I think there's a lot of us that want to spice some things up a little bit during the slow season. So that mm-hmm. is a great way to use it. Latara, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your your honesty, your transparency, your matter of factness, <laughs> I'm sure. The listeners will really appreciate it. Um, but please tell people how they can find you or keep in contact with you. So Instagram is probably where I'm most active. Um, I'm at L Danielle on Instagram, and that's E-L-L-E-D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E. Facebook, I use a little more personally as opposed to the ways that I use Instagram, but I am on Facebook under the same name. And then, of course, my website and up and coming, refreshed, revitalized blog um, at ldanielle.com. This wraps up another edition of the Zoom In podcast, a podcast that highlights the stories and experiences of Black women photographers. First, thank you for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please share with your crew. And second, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify so you don't miss out on the next episode.